In terms of partnership, I think it's really the willingness to act as partners and not just with a vendor-customer relationship and to have the conversations that are just much more exploratory in nature so that you can find those places where you can innovate or dig in and explore something that may be a dead end, but may also be an amazing opportunity. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Fast Company has called it Rent the Runway, but for sofas. New York Magazine has called it the trendiest online furniture rental company. But what I find so fascinating about Furnish is that they're really bringing circular commerce to the next level. They're giving consumers more flexibility in how they create a home that they love, especially as we continue to work, learn, and play from these spaces, right? It's giving people the power to have more control over how they furnish their homes, where they travel to, and where they live. I first interviewed one of the company's co-founders in the summer of 2020, when the pandemic completely changed the way people lived, learned, and worked. So today, I wanted to sit down with the chief operating officer of the company, Kristen Smith. There has been so many new developments at the company, new services, new priorities, so we sat down and we got into some of the key headlines that you all need to know, and most of all, how they're continuing to scale, innovate, and differentiate in this circular world as it becomes more of a priority for consumers. Listen in, because hearing her perspectives on all of the moving parts of Furnish and how they all bring it to life is fascinating. Kristen, thanks so much for taking the time. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So you are now the COO of Furnish, which we'll get into some of the great work you're doing there in a bit. But I want to start with a little bit about you because you have quite an impressive history in retail. Most notably, you've held roles at Zulily and Amazon, two companies that we've done quite a bit of coverage on. I have to ask, what were some of your shining moments from your experiences at these at these brands and how did they almost dictate what you were looking for in your next move? Yeah, well, I've been so, so lucky to be in some really great organizations with great teams that are doing amazing things. And so I've gotten the opportunity several times to really think about how do we make a customer experience better? How do we in some way provide extra value to customers and to really be able to do so reinventing something or thinking ahead even further than maybe what customers are directly saying that they need. And Amazon and Zulily were really good, really good experiences from that regard. And what I think I learned there is I kept gravitating toward what is that wide open space? Where is the next thing that we need to build? Especially when it was totally unclear how we were going to get there. But every time it was about really identifying something that wasn't optimal for the customer and then sort of working back and saying, how do we make that better? 
what do we need to build? How do we get that out there and start getting feedback and make it a great experience, but also give ourselves the leeway to be able to continue to innovate and build and grow and change as the customer is telling us that we need to do any of those things. So Amazon, I got to build a number of different things, including our same day delivery experience, which is just incredible. I mean, we launched that in 2005. And we saw that now it's just like a, a given, right? I'm going to go on and I'm going to get my groceries same day, or I'm going to go on Prime now and be able to bring a whole bunch of things same day. But it was really novel in 2005. And then when I went to Zoo Lily, it was really like taking the training wheels off because although I kept seeking these sort of wide open spaces, I still had such a great team around me and we had a lot of software that were built already. It didn't already necessarily do what we wanted it to do and what we were stretching it to do, but there was some foundation. And going to Zulily was really like taking those training wheels off and trying to build something from scratch that was growing and evolving and really making its way in the world for the first time in this sort of strange flash sale environment. And it was just a totally different supply chain, a completely different operation, different customer experience in terms of how they were shopping. But I was able to sort of bring all of the sort of safe entrepreneurial things that I learned within the big Amazon world to Zulily and build out an operation and a supply chain and all of our logistics to, to sort of fit this different model, but in the same way of thinking about how do we work backwards from our customers? How do we build a great work environment for all these people that we're now bringing on? How do we bring those things together every single day? That's great. So that brings us to Furnish, of course. And I remember seeing the news that that you've jo- you joined the organization, just being like, oh wow, like what a perfect addition to the team just based on the vision and, and the background that I heard from Michael Barlow in the past. We spoke about it. I think a little more than a year ago at this point. So, I mean, what kind of inspired you to join the Furnish team? What about the business model, the mission? I mean, what was it since you were so focused on like those wide open spaces and those big opportunities? I mean, what was like, what in your mind made you be like, yes, this is like the next best step for me? Yeah. So I think a number of different things, but I sort of joined the Furnish team from the sidelines really early on when Michael and Lucas were first thinking about building this company. I saw it as a a sort of like one pager sort of thing. And we went through it. It was actually a press release and FAQ, just like Amazon uses. And I was just like, I think this is a great concept. And they said, are we crazy for trying to build this? And I said, it'll be challenging. There are a lot of things that have to come together. But I think that that means that there's something real there that can be a real business that can be sustainable, that maybe, you know, might have a competitive mode around it, might provide really big value to other companies that might want to use the service. And so I was really excited for them. And I actually became an investor in the friends and family round for just a little bit of money and and an advisor for a couple of years. And when I was leaving my last startup, it was just a really good time. Uh, Michael was looking for somebody who had come and scaled things in the past. And while I was super intellectually curious and excited about what had to be built, as well as what the business model was and the impact that it could have for customers and for the environment, ultimately, I was also just blown away by the team they already had. And especially at this point in my career, 
getting to work with people who are not only good at their jobs, but are so wonderful to work with is such a treat. And I am so fortunate to be able to make those decisions. But I really loved the customer offer of being able to meet customers where they are and enable them to live the flexible lives that they need to live without having to continually invest in furniture and decor as their lives change and being able to avoid that evolution of your life causing a lot of discarded furniture that goes into landfills. So I really loved that. But at the end of the day, it was it's just an amazing team whom I love working with every single day. And that was the sort of linchpin in it all. Yeah. I'm really glad you kind of touched on the the mission or value proposition of Furnish because that flexibility and how Michael spoke about that flexibility and how it was so reflective of the mindset, the pain points, and and the challenges that so many of their consumers were facing. I mean, that's what really gravitated me to that story and, and to Furnish as a brand. And it's funny because in that first conversation, we were talking about how the pandemic was changing the way people lived, the way they worked, and people were no longer making these living decisions based on like how close they were to their offices anymore, that they were getting more flexibility. And now here we are a year and change, 18 months or so, months later, and you know a lot of those discussion points are still very much present. People are changing how they find home, what they call home, where they go. So, I mean, what changes or, or I guess, further investments ha- has furnished made as, as a result of the ever-presence of, of this narrative and, you know, the, I guess, the ever-presence of these behaviors, right? Because it seems like, if anything, it's kind of accelerated or expanded since our first conversation. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you had a conversation about how we were doing almost no home office furniture. And then all of a sudden when the pandemic hit and all of us were working from home, there was a huge spike in demand for that. So that was a big thing that we saw straight out of the gates back in March and April and even May last year. What we saw come in after that was the fact that people were spending so much more time at home, they were looking to upgrade that experience. And I always think back to sort of my earlier years and I'm like, I ate a lot of dinners on the couch, right? But (laughs) after a while, you're like, okay, I'm working at the couch. I'm eating dinner here. I'm talking to people here. It's my social space. It's my workspace. And so we saw people really upgrading their couch and then maybe also adding a dining table when they maybe wouldn't have otherwise. And so that like being at home and really wanting your space to provide that feeling of home, especially during the pandemic, when you wanted to feel safe, you wanted to find some joy there. You just really wanted to feel not just home as a space, but home as a feeling. We saw a lot of people upgrading their sofas, upgrading their bedrooms, adding, you know, area rugs or decor pieces just to make it feel more like home. We still see that. And I think as companies have decided more and more about their remote work policies and how long those are going to stay. We have seen people moving around. And so a year ago, we were only in sort of the LA and like parts of Orange County areas and Seattle, 
you know, really on the West Coast, we've now expanded our Southern California area all the way down past San Diego, and we've opened Dallas, Fort Worth, as well as Austin. And we are seeing people who may have been on the coast, may have had that more dynamic evolutionary lifestyle before, may have had the idea that you could access versus own something. Um, and we're seeing them be everywhere in the country. So I think what we're seeing is we need to get to more places. We need to be able to be where our customers are so that we can provide the service that we provide because it's becoming so much more relevant in many, many more places. When I first joined the company, you know, we would have conversations about, well, is this just a millennial or Gen Z urban core, only like 25 to 30 year old thing. And I think what we're seeing is that life is very changing, that timelines are very uncertain, and that people want to have that flexibility to live their lives as the sort of time dictates and as their tastes or needs change. And so I think that we're just seeing the access versus ownership and the flexibility become more and more standard and more and more demanded in more and more places. So it's more just a further of furthering of what we've been doing, but I think that we're very much in a good place at the right time to help customers as this is becoming sort of the ethos and the philosophy and the way that people are living. No, that's great. So, so to that end, I mean, you talked a little bit about expansion, but what else has it meant for your team from an operations perspective, from an investment perspective? Because like you said, it's the ethos, right? It's becoming a, a more integrated part of the conversation, how people talk about their personal lives, their professional lives, and that balance of the two. I love how you use the couch, right? As kind of that destination. Like that's, that's, that used to be the point of relaxation. Then it became the point of work and then remote learning. I mean, so how do you create that space that you truly love? So what has that meant from like a tactical perspective? What have been guiding, guiding forces for you as you've kind of gotten up and running in your role and have helped drive the company forward? Yeah, so many different things. I mean, it starts with making sure that we have the right product. When we started, we were really operating under a set of hypotheses that we had to prove out. And we got a lot of data early on about what do our durability standards truly need to be? How do we curate furniture so that we don't overwhelm our customer? We really give them the right SKUs for them to, to choose from. And then how do we think about the ability to reuse that asset over and over and over again, again, to avoid the landfill so that, but with every customer feeling like it's a new piece. And so we've had to build a lot of subject matter expertise on both sourcing product and selecting what that product is going to be. And that's durability, it's modularity, so that if one part breaks, we don't have to trash the whole thing. We can swap out parts, we can order parts, we can make parts for the product. And then it's also about the service that we're able to provide both internally to those products and externally to our customers. And we've just been through a lot of change, but also just a lot of growth. And I think the supply chain has been particularly challenging over the last 18, 24 months. I think we have great vendors and they worked with us really, really well. And we minimized a lot of the disruptions early on, but as time has gone on, you know, I think nobody's immune to supply chain challenges. So we did go and say, okay, well, what can we do to not only in the short term, 
mitigate some of those, but also thinking about building that foundation based off of all of those things that we learned in the first couple of years. So we did some design and manufacturing of our own sofa lines, one with Crate and Barrel, who's been an amazing partner for us, and one with a commercial furniture company that does a lot of custom furniture design and manufacture and implementation. They're called Emblem, and they're out of Las Vegas now. Both of those were projects that we were like, look, we are getting a sense for what our customers want and what we need to do in order to serve them over time. And these were opportunities for us to go and and dip our toe in the water a little bit on, can we really design these things? Can we get them manufactured? What does it mean to have a domestic supply chain that maybe has different carbon emissions profiles and where we can work more closely with our vendors and what does that do for supply chain volatility, et cetera. So I would say that's a big thing that has happened over the last year or so is really those ideas becoming actual projects and then coming to fruition. And you can see the Brooks sofas and the Quincy sofa on our site. And it's so exciting to see those because there's been a lot of work to, to go into that. But I think it's also just an opportunity for us to think about working with our supply chain partners in a lot of different ways and being able to use that to the advantage of our customers from a cost perspective, from a product availability perspective, from a design perspective, and on a number of different levels. That's great. Yeah, it's interesting how you can make those connecting points between the challenge. Obviously, a lot of brands and retailers that are struggling with the supply chain, managing supply and demand and those partnerships, right? It's about achieving that alignment and finding the most effective ways to work together. So I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up that partnership with Crate and Barrel. So to that end, I mean, have there been any key learnings in forging those partnerships around like what makes an effective ecosystem or a partnership, right? Because I'm sure there are a lot of retailers thinking about ways to better collaborate with all of their brand partners as well. Do you have any insights or, or perspectives around how and, and why that partnership has been so effective for Furnish as a business? Sure, absolutely. And I love talking about this because Crate and Barrel has been such an amazing partner. But I would say, I'll just start from a high level. The best partnerships are really ones where you can be very transparent and open and collaborative and where you build a, a great deal of trust so that you can have conversations. And then ideas that you would have never had if you were just thinking on your side or they were just thinking on their side, those ideas would never have come up except for that collaboration and just having those conversations. So I think that being transparent, being real, looking for opportunities to not only be transparent and share the things that are going on, but being able to collaborate and have a a conversation about it. And Crate and Barrel would be a really good case study for us because they have a wholesale program and it's amazing, but it's really built for businesses who have to go and buy a lot of furniture for an office or a hotel or something like that. And so when you look at the margin that they're able to offer, it doesn't really fit with a business like ours in a super scalable way. And so that was fine when we were starting off and we had a number of different partners where that became the case. And most of those, as much as we love them as brands, they just don't work for us financially going forward. And so 
we've sort of stopped sourcing products from some of those folks. But Crate and Barrel has continued to be a partner of ours, not because the financials look all that great. And in fact, if you talk to Michael Cheney, who runs the business to business part of Crate and Barrel, he said, you know, in, in his first conversation with Michael, he knew that long term, the financials were not going to make sense. But we didn't just write that off. It's been a very exciting, dynamic conversation while we're ordering items and bringing them in and dealing with all of the operational tactical things, but also to say like, hey, what else can we do together? Like, here are some of the big challenges we have or the opportunities that we want to take advantage of. And they can talk about some of the cool things that are going on that may or may not connect to any of those. And that's how we sort of found this ability to collaborate on designing and manufacturing the Quincy sofa is because they said, well, you know, we actually own half of a manufacturer in North Carolina and they're amazing. And we could actually probably figure out a way to, to get them involved in actually creating something for you. And then that it just sort of snowballed from there. So in terms of partnership, I think it's really the willingness to act as partners and not just with a vendor customer relationship and to, to have the conversations that are just much more exploratory in nature so that you can find those places where you can innovate or dig in and explore something that may be a dead end, but may also be an amazing opportunity. Yep. I love that. I love using those collaborative partnerships as a way to reveal new opportunities and new ideas that are mutually beneficial. So to that end, I mean, have there been any internal conversations at Furnish around scaling this type of partnership, onboarding new partners. I'm always fascinated by how companies find these connecting points, right? Between their different businesses, between their product sets, and even their customers, right? So, I mean, have there been any internal discussions around possibly scaling those partnerships, any adjustments as far as like what you're looking for or how you assess and build the partnerships? I mean, again, this is just such a fascinating area and you guys have seemed to have mastered it with Crate and Barrel. <laughs> well, I think we are definitely interested in scaling all kinds of partnerships. On the customer side, we have some really great partnerships with multifamily operators and owners. And I think we're really trying to figure out what makes those click and hum because I think we are very aligned in terms of creating an amazing resident experience that really is flexible, especially for renters, that makes it very easy for customers to get what they want without the mailroom filling up or something like that. And so we're still working on figuring out exactly how to make those things click. We're going and finding other types of potential customers as well, whether it's a business to business arrangement where we can help with furniture because there is a ephemeral or cash flow nature of what the, the customer is doing that fits with a rental model where we can help them source the furniture that they need. And so I think it's really about going and and being very creative about where could our product be? Where could our service really make an impact? And then brainstorming around like, all right, well, who's in that situation? And then let's go talk to a bunch of people and just try to open up the conversation similar to what we did with Crate and Barrel to say, Forgetting that we do what we do, just tell us about the most important things that you think about every day and what are the things you're trying to accomplish that are the 
biggest opportunities to serve your customers or to grow your business or to avoid things that are sort of slowing you down or dragging you down. And I think, again, it's applying that same sort of conversation about the bigger picture as opposed to saying like, hey, I really have this great hammer. And so let's go find a nail, right? <laughs> it's really like, let's go, <laughs> let's have a conversation about possibilities in the big picture. And then let's talk about whether there are ways that we can work together in different and creative ways. So I think we're trying to apply that mindset, that exploratory, that creative and innovative mindset that again, ends at like, who is the customer and what do they need? And what are they trying to accomplish? And what are the things that we can bring to the table or that we might need to go explore. So that is, I think, something that we've applied in a number of different places. And I think that we'll continue to do that with our vendors as well, because I don't foresee us in the, anytime in the near future manufacturing all of our own furniture. I mean, there are some really great wholesalers and manufacturers out there that say, hey, we don't necessarily want to do this ourselves. And you could just get very like, either we buy stuff or we, we manufacture it ourselves mindset. If you just thought about all of the tactical things that you're doing on a daily or weekly basis, we're trying to make sure that at least a couple times a year, we're having a bigger conversation. What else could we be doing? How could we work together differently and still make this a great experience for you as a vendor, but also maybe bring the furnished business, the furnished supply chain, the furnished kind of customer the next step along the evolution. And now a word from our sponsor. Retail is embarking on a new digital driven era. What new opportunities await for your business? What new ideas are just waiting to be discovered? You can find it all at the 2021 Retail Innovation Conference. We're going digital again for two jam-packed days of tactical sessions, thought-provoking discussions, and AI-powered matchmaking and mentoring sessions with some of retail's brightest minds. Join executives from Neiman Marcus, Adore Me, and Crate and & Barrel for one of the industry's top events on all things innovation. Register for free. Yeah, you heard that right. At RetailInnovationConference.com. That's RetailInnovationConference.com. I love that point of asking, where else can we make an impact? Where else can we provide value? And that kind of brings me to this this final I guess, bullet of of the furnish business that I wanted to get into, which is around that mission that you brought up earlier around minimizing or completely eliminating, you know, furniture from the landfill. It was a big talking point in my conversation with Michael back in 2020, how you've been able to develop these processes for assessing, ensuring high quality furniture is always in the mix and what processes do you need to implement in order to ensure high quality for your customer. Um, It's fascinating to kind of hear what's happening on the back end to make that happen. But essentially, he noted that the circular model, the sustainability component of Furnish was essentially like a value add for the consumer, but it was essentially that flexibility that was the heart of the mission. It was the heart of the customer need. I'm curious if you've seen this evolve or change at all, because I feel like over the past year, especially, we've really seen transparency and sustainability really come to the forefront from the consumer's perspective. They want to know how things are sourced. They want to know how things get from point A to point B. And they just want to understand how things are working on the back end a little bit more, which I think is is kind of an exciting opportunity for companies like yours. So in terms of priority, have you seen a shift at all in terms of how consumers are 
looking at or responding to that circular mission? It's a great question. I think we're on a longer journey than probably what we will be able to notice over the last year, unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, because as a startup, we're still learning and it gives us an opportunity to look everywhere about our footprint, our reusability, our sustainability. Like I mentioned, we started with this idea of durability being the main thing, which is a very good foundational point where it's like, we want these things to last a long time. And we thought we knew at least 80% what that meant. And we did. We learned a lot more about that 20% we didn't know. And so I think that's allowed us to do a lot of things, but we've added to our sort of upfront look modularity. So how do we think about things in parts so that we can reuse parts, even if another part doesn't make it through a cycle or doesn't come back. And so I think we've added that modularity. And now we're starting to think about the full supply chain impact. So being able to manufacture domestically gives us a lot of opportunity to eliminate lots and lots of transportation and carbon emissions and all kinds of things that can add to the climate impact of the product that you're sourcing. And I think, again, we're just scratching the surface there. So we are thankful for a little bit more time to keep raising the bar internally so that when every customer is demanding this, that we will have had a little bit more time to do even more. Because I think about everything, about our delivery vehicles, about our materials that we use to wrap and protect the items. Most of them are reusable, but we have more that we could do. It's about working with our manufacturers to say, well, how are you sourcing the materials and what are the materials and what is the long-term impact of those materials in the world or the holistic impact of those materials in the world? So it gives us more time to keep raising the bar. In the last year, I would say, yes, the conversation is a little bit more frequent about the impact, the environmental sustainability of what we're doing. But I don't think that it's a primary purchasing or solution finding thing for our customers quite yet. It's a sort of like conversion tactic of like, all right, I'm in a situation where I just don't want to go and spend $10,000, $5,000 on putting furniture that I love into my new place but I really do want a place that I love, right? So I think that that is the primary pain point where most customers come through the door and then they feel much better about it because they know that it's something that avoids that thing that they've probably done in the past, which is throwing out, jettisoning or like wishful donating an item that that they just, they didn't have any more use for, but is a, a really good item still. So I think that that conversation will continue to grow. We are seeing more people talking about it and there's a little more transparency in our supply chain and our industry. I think if you look back at maybe like the apparel industry and sort of how Rent the Runway was in a really good spot to start driving the conversation, there were many, many years where there wasn't the transparency and there wasn't sort of public demand to know about how much the impact from the chemicals or how much wasted materials or even finished product were a part of that supply chain. And then all of a sudden it seemed like overnight that flipped and everybody was really, really well aware of it. And so we want to make sure that we are leading internally both the readiness for that 
overnight switch in our converse in the conversation if it happens and maybe even leading the conversation as we get smarter and better at what we're doing and we feel really good about being almost an accountability for ourselves but much more publicly so long story short i think that it's still secondary but it is a much it is a much bigger conversation even over the last year and i can expect it will continue to be more and more of the conversation as the years go by Fascinating. Well, Kristen, thank you for being so transparent about that. And I feel like a lot of companies are at different levels of the journey, depending on their core business, you know, what their existing processes were like prior to saying, okay, this is going to be a priority for us moving forward. So I think a lot of businesses are, are very much in the, in the same boat as you, probably a few steps behind that this is a journey. No one has it 100% figured out yet, and it may continue to change as well. So again, I appreciate your transparency there and, and what's really coming to the top of your list from a priority standpoint, but to close out, would love any final thoughts or, or takeaways as far as what you've learned as CEO of Furnish thus far and what really is coming to the top of your priority list. And this could be, I guess, for you individually, for your team, or, or even for Furnish as a whole, right? I mean, I feel like there are so many new technologies, especially supporting this mission of transparency, alignment, and better collaboration between brands and retailers. But I mean, you tell me, I mean, what, what's really got you excited for the future of retail, for the future of Furnish? And, and what are you what are you excited to dig into, I guess, is the big question. That is so tough to choose. We could probably talk another half hour about that. <laughs> I know. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, I always come back to like the customer mission. And I think that our ability to make it effortless to create the home that you love is our touchstone. And I think that what we have just at its very core because of our business model and the circularity is the ability to like not only get what you want, but feel good about it too, because it is by definition a lot more sustainable because of the business model and because of all of the things that we do to make sure that we can continue to reutilize furniture and decor and that we're doing a lot of the work to think about how to do that even more and more and more. So I think that what I get really excited about is going and exploring that mission of how do we make it more effortless to create the home that you love even more? And how do we bring that to more customers? And so I think that that speaks to our ability to get to more geographies, because the biggest reason that we hear that customers sort of don't renew their subscription with us is because they're moving to someplace that we don't service. And so they have to either decide that they love something and apply all of their rental payments to buying it out, or they have to return it. So we need to get to more places. I think we can offer much more value. So whether that's the products that we offer or the services that we offer, that's super exciting to me. I think that we can really look at all of the services that we're providing and say, like, how do we make it more stable? How do we make it a little bit more personalized? How do we scale it so that the great customer experience that we are able to offer today is still intact and maybe even better as we are doing it multiples of what we're doing today. And so I'm super excited about how we do more for more customers and we continue to have a bigger and bigger impact on sustainability and people's lives. So I could go on into probably every part of our company that I'm really excited about, whether it's the shopping experience and the way that we can use of the way that we can make it super easy to choose what you want and visualize it in your home. There's tons of technology and work that we're doing there. 
I think if you look at sort of the partnerships that we're building and how we can get to customers and how they can become aware of us, whether it's our direct-to-consumer marketing or it's businesses that we're making partnerships with and growing partnerships with, that's super exciting. And then there's tons on the back end about how we actually execute on our promises and the things that we can bring into the, the mix for what that experience looks like and how we make it even easier to make it, to, you know, to have the home that you love. And so I think that that is, there are so many different things that get me super excited. And again, we could probably talk for another half hour if we really wanted to. Go into <laughs> That'll be part two of the conversation. We'll, we'll right. dig into all of the different layers. But for now, Kristen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out to chat with me. It's, it's, again, really exciting to just kind of catch up with you, see how you're digging into your role as COO, the growth and evolution that Furnish has seen. You're really doing some very exciting things as an organization. So great to get the update straight from the source. So thank you again. Thank you. It's Again, great talking. And of course, I I love to talk about this stuff. So I'm glad to do it anytime. Thanks so much for having me. Excellent. Well, we'll probably hold you to that and uh, schedule a part two sometime soon. But for now, thank you again to all of you listening to this episode of Retail Remix. If you have any follow-up questions for Kristen or thoughts, comments, we would love to hear from you, especially if we're planning for that part two. Drop us a line on Twitter at our touchpoints, on LinkedIn at Retail Touchpoints. Or leave us a comment on your preferred podcast player. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, anywhere else you listen to podcasts, we are likely there. So leave a comment, leave a review, and of course, subscribe so you get more great conversations like this one. Every week, every Monday, we have a new episode coming to your preferred device. Thanks again, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.